Okay, my um, name is Alan Horwitz. It's a great pleasure to um, be here with Brendan. Um, I have um, am now retired, but I um, was um, studied the sociology of mental illness since the early 1970s. So, um, really, over 50 years and. Um, you know, my dissertation um, at the time was about how people came to seek help for psychiatric problems because you know you don't have a you know family psychiatrist in the same way that you have a family doctor. So right. the question is, well, how did people find uh, psychiatrists? And this involved you know both interviewing people and you know, looking at their records at the time, um, it was much easier to gain access to um, people's records, uh, shockingly easy um, from contemporary standpoint. I mean, I would find files of children of my professors in there, um, which I really shouldn't have been reading, but of course avidly did. Um, and really have been in the field ever since that time. Um, I think I published uh, one book uh, called Creating Mental Illness, which was about sort of the social matrix around um, psychiatry and how changing social forces really led to a complete upheaval in the uh, diagnostic system of, of the discipline. Then um, in um, 2006, I uh, published a book with, um, co-authored with Jerry Wakefield called The Loss of Sadness to apply that, me. that um, the perspective developed in creating mental illness to depression in particular. And depression really was not central to psychiatry before 1980. That is, that anxiety was much more at the heart of the field. And of course, um, anxiety is the basic mechanism in psychoanalysis, uh, which sees depression more as an outgrowth of anxiety. Okay, and this is the crux because that's exactly the core of the book I just finished that you mentioned from 2006-2007 is that the psychiatric community made decisions in the 20th century that shifted that emphasis on anxiety and also put this major emphasis on major depressive disorder mm -hmm. and being able to categorize that and you know we can have a checklist of symptoms. And most importantly, your entire book is kind of this argument that they might have done a disservice by enveloping what we would think is normal responses to difficult events and not being able to call those normal human reactions, normal sadness, normal sorrow, even if it's extreme, might still not fall under a disorder, a major depressive disorder. So some people might say, well, what's the problem with that? It's great. More sad people are being diagnosed and helped with psychiatry or being helped with drugs or being helped with therapy. This is all wonderful. The fact that we've captured more things under this umbrella for you, what is the what was the major problem as you looked at by gathering some of normal human responses into a disorder? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think the problems outweigh the possible benefits, and okay. I think the reason for 
why depression, which had been a relatively minor presence in psychiatry before 1980. 1980 is when the field completely reformulated its diagnostic system to emphasize the overt symptoms. If you have five out of nine possible symptoms, you are depressed. You have depressive disorder, regardless of what the context of of why your symptoms develop. So if you were undergoing a painful breakup with you know someone you'd been going out for for years and they're breaking up with you, if you've just lost your job, if you just got a diagnosis of some uh, life-threatening illness and you become depressed after those circumstances, it doesn't matter you get a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And even if you you start a new relationship, you find a new job, it turns out the diagnosis was wrong of some possible physical um, condition, and you immediately recover and you're fine. Your depression instantly goes away. It doesn't matter. You still have the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. So you have the symptoms, you have a disorder. The problem is, I think, that people who develop symptoms of depression in you know, context of you know, losing relationships or of important um, you know, uh, your job, other important social roles, they're responding the way that humans, and not just humans, this is um, non-human um, primates as well, um, We're designed to get depressed in those circumstances. Our emotions are doing what our emotions are supposed to be doing. So there's no disorder that is involved when symptoms of what I would call sadness, as opposed to depression, um, arise. So um, calling it a disorder is just... um, mislabeling the phenomena that is involved. And then there's the question of treatment, that certainly the antidepressant drugs um, do help many people. They also come with lots of possible negative side effects, they can become addictive and very difficult to um, stop taking. Um, And certainly that is by far the overwhelming response to people who have diagnoses of depression. So I see that as a a big problem as well. Um, But the other, um, another unanticipated consequence of the um, using symptoms to diagnose um, mental illness and depression in particular was it uncovered huge proportions of the population that qualified for a diagnosis of depression. Before, in the 1970s, say before 
the development of symptom-based um, diagnoses. Studies showed about 3% of the population um, had some sort of depressive disorder. That um, rose by a factor of about six times immediately after the publication of the DSM-3 in 1980, where about 17% of the population um, qualifies for um, a diagnosis of depression. Now, the best studies, which are ones that aren't just getting at symptoms at one point in time, but following people over longer periods of time, find that about half of the population qualifies for a diagnosis of depression. Um, and there's just nothing like this in, say, physical illness. Well, lots of people have um, serious physical problems, but these generally arise when people are older and their cells and their chromosomes are breaking down. They become more vulnerable to disease. In contrast, by far the highest rates of depression are found in young people, in people in their 20s, in people in their prime reproductive years. This is evolutionarily virtually impossible, and you can't find any physical problems that have such a high proportion of people who have them while they're in their prime reproductive years. Evolution wouldn't have allowed that to happen. So why did it in the case of depression? Well, the reason is because most of these people who are getting diagnoses of depression don't have a disorder at all. They're responding to adverse circumstances in the way that humans are designed to do so. And uh, go ahead. No, no. So then I have a question because when you, that's the thing I think mentally I've responded to. I've worked with a, um, in publishing for veterinarians. There's been a lot of talk about burnout, depression, and mental health among care workers. So um, compassion fatigue, things like that, and leading to depression, suicidal ideations. There's a lot of talk about mental health. And the question always that everyone looks around with is, there's all this depression. Um, what is going, what is the cause of this? And then I could see when that first initial, if it was at 3%, it jumped. Um, initial thing might be, well, there was a lot of undiagnosed depression going on that we were ignoring, and now we can care for these people with depression. But then now the question is, well, what's wrong with the modern world? There's something wrong with this world in some way that's causing this sad. Why do all these people feel they have sad, they sad, they're sad and they're sorrowful and they're rest and they're struggling with life? So that, I mean, maybe that that probably opens it outside of what we can say for sure, but I'm wondering if you have, you must have heard, you, this is the stuff that's talked about. Either it was undiagnosed depression or there's something about the modern world that must be causing this higher incidence. Yeah, well, I think what it, the main thing in the modern world that is causing this is a combination of psychiatry's diagnostic system, which okay. I think is completely incorrect. And while I'm at it, let me say it's becoming even worse. That I was going to ask, because you're hoping in the book, I hope they listen to this for the next DSM. And I suspect you're going to tell me they did not. Well, they certainly listened. 
and they certainly made changes, and the changes were absolutely in the wrong direction. That is <laughs> okay. that before the diagnosis of depression was completely symptom-based. There was one exception, and that was for bereavement. That is, if you develop symptoms of what psychiatry calls depression after someone close to you has died, well, then you're not getting diagnosed after two weeks, which is what you would be otherwise. You have to wait for this is two months to get a diagnosis, or if you have a, an especially severe symptom, I mean, if you are really bordering on psychotic-like responses, you get a diagnosis. And that, I think, makes sense. Yeah. But what um, I and you know, my colleagues raised, well, why is bereavement unique? That is, isn't that an example of when you should exclude people from diagnosis as opposed to the sole exception. And you know, the, the people involved in formulating the DSM, you know, they said, yeah, you know, that argument makes sense. Yeah. Um, but instead of expanding the bereavement exclusion, which is what we argued they should do, they did away with it. So that in the <laughs> most recent, now we're up to the DSM-5, um, there is no bereavement exclusion. That is, if you have the, you know, five out of nine symptoms of um, the diagnostic criteria, you are, you have a major depressive disorder, even if someone has just died that was very close to you. Or your career was derailed or your... Well, that was always the case. <laughs> yeah, the one okay. exception is no <laughs> right. longer one. an exception. Wait, so they thought about context. Your argument was, I think you need to think about context. Right. And you also provide in the book, which is close to my heart, I look to ancient thinkers all the time. And you're like, well, let's see what the ancient thinkers had to say about sorrow and melancholy, which psychiatrists were drawing on at the beginning of psychiatry. They're drawing on a lot of this ancient thought. So what was the you pitch him on context and say, well, this one context really should color whether someone is regarded as ordered or disordered. And they said, well, you're right. We should do it with the context altogether and just keep it to the why are the symptoms so attractive as a notator of depression? And they didn't want to consider the kind of the fuzzy things. Yeah, well, I think there's many reasons why. I mean, certainly. um and this isn't unique to psychiatry. I think it has a lot of resonance in general medicine as well. People want to think whatever disorder they deal with is is a public health problem. Is sort of the okay, the, yeah, become the most common way of um, referring to things that they're very widespread and not rare problems. And so this has a lot of, um, I think, professional benefits to the field. But that's not the only reason. Say mental health advocates like promoting high estimates of any disorder, including depression, because their notion is that it helps destigmatize the 
um, condition that if so many people, if say up to half of the population can be depressed, well, then certainly there's nothing wrong. We shouldn't be ashamed to get a diagnosis of depression. It's almost more normal than it is abnormal. So they like it. Certainly pharmaceutical companies love having high rates um, because they can promote their products to um, uh, not, not really cure the condition, but to, to manage the right. um, condition. I think that was especially true when the major antidepressants were under patent. They've now lost their patents. So I think to a certain extent, the drug industry you know, has you know, lost the f- you know, fervent interest they once had in depression because now um, you, know, you could take generic, the same medicine in generic form. So it's not, um, depression isn't as profitable as it once was, although it's still pretty lucrative. And I think also, I don't think in the book you you mention things like you're discussing now and you you approach it with nuance. You don't, again, all the best intentions, people who design drugs, design drugs to help people. We can say they do it to make money, but they also do it to help people. So if it can yeah. help more people, great, we're going to market it more. The mental health advocates you've mentioned, yes, they profit personally, but really if it's a cause they believe in, even if they happen to benefit personally, they also feel this is a wonderful thing, that destigmatizing of mental health you talked about, everyone is talking about constantly, you see it in the public sector now, it's really a, a it's at the level of social media. Everyone wants to say how everyone is. Uh, every if everyone is mentally ill, then no one is mentally yeah. ill. And yeah. so I I see that tendency. If everyone's anxious, no one is. If everyone's depressed, no one is. And we can all be accepting of it, which is a good impulse. But what do you see as someone trying to deal with um, these medical problems, these psychiatric problems? So what's the con of that? It sounds good. Like everyone will be less judgmental. That's a win. Yeah. Well, th- there's no question that the general culture surrounding mental health has changed dramatically. And it's it's hard to give a particular date, I'd say. But certainly, I mean, within the last 10 years, and I think um, – even more within the last, say, two or three years with the COVID situation and um, that now you can hardly read a story about any phenomena without it referring to problematic mental health consequences. And so now literally, you know, 50% being depressed may seem like a low estimate that everyone right. um, can now be be depressed. And I think the problem is that the relatively small proportion of people who really are depressed, I mean, that there's no question that there is major depressive disorder, um, that those people get overlooked and do not get the the kind of treatment that they need, despite the fact that the, I think the best studies show that the antidepressants really do work with the most severely ill people. They really are not 
much better or maybe not any better than placebos for most of the people who take them. Um, But by having such a loose and large and general definition of what constitutes depression, I think it's those people who really are depressed who um, suffer from that kind of depression, of definition. So as someone who absolutely for decades has had um, high levels of anxiety, and sometimes they were overwhelming and sometimes they're normal, but always anxious, episodes where I was very sad for periods of time. And and I like it in the book, again, looking at ancients talking about melancholy, we dismiss this humor thing about that person has too much of this humor and too much of that humor. And they sort of treat it as human bodies, human nature create bo- some bodies that are more melancholy than mm-hmm. others. You're more melancholy and that's just the way it is which is kind of borne out by at least my personal experience where you just kind of figure out I'm kind of a melancholy person and I can feel the difference having walked through worse episodes, depression where there's no reason for your melancholy versus there is a reason for your melancholy. And that's how the one thing about where pharmacology and psychiatry and mental health advocacy all come together and help the people is I feel bad And so I want to go to someone and I want them to deliver the easiest solutions, the best solution. If you can do a treatment on me, if you can give me a pill that I can take regularly, that is easier than me having to interrogate my life and ask, why am I unhappy? Are these people around me terrible to me? And it's I'm having a normal reaction Mm -hmm. or something horrible has happened or I'm a little down and I need to be, it's going to take work, but I need to put scaffolding in my life to sort of keep myself on an even keel. Those things are way harder than just, you feel sad, you're overwhelmed, and you can just get a pill. I've been sad for this long. Can you just give me a pill for it? Yeah, there's no question that while talk therapy has, um, I think, a lot of advantages for some people, it is very inconvenient. It is time-consuming. It's for most people, it's very difficult to fit into their normal day-to-day lives. So as you say, it's just so much easier to take a pill that, um, and most people will, it's you, you get them from your family doctor. You don't have to seek out a specialist, um, that family doctors in general have no reluctance at all in prescribing them. And as I said much earlier, the problem you know, is they can have you know, some fairly dire side effects and for many people can become addictive. Is there a way in which this tendency toward um, – so there are extreme, I would call ridiculous critics, for instance, people who um, – dogmatically, like Scientologists, Scientology has a super anti-psychiatry, anti-mental illness thing. This is all stuff you can take care of with your own higher cognitive level. You don't need help. Psychiatry will do worse to you. And then the people on the other side who don't question at all Mm -hmm. what is kind of being done pharmacologically, the easy solution might not be the right solution. Your book kind of I liked it because it sat closer, it sat closer to the middle. It wasn't what the, there are ridiculous critics of psychiatry and ridiculous proponents that nothing that the mental health industry does is wrong. And so it sort of sat in the middle. And so I wondered the forces that lead to this happening, you know, your, your small part in that book is 
I would like them to adjust the symptom list, and I would like them to adjust the thinking about major depressive disorder to include normal human functioning. Is there a vision that if you had your way looking to the future, you'd say, I wish talk therapy or mental health or the approach to sadness and sorrow that happens for us, which is terrible and difficult to deal with, how should we be dealing with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, if I were the yeah, um, depressive diagnosis dictator, um, yes, right. <laughs> yeah, I think the first thing I would implement would be something called watchful waiting. That is, if even if somebody meets the overly generous diagnostic criteria for depression, I think what you do is just wait for a while and see if the depressive depression has happened while somebody is undergoing a divorce proceeding or is just broken up with um, you know, their long-term partner. Um, you know, just sort of wait several weeks and see what happens with the symptoms. If they persist, they're still there, they're not getting better, then sure, you know, go ahead and you know, make give a prescription um, and see how the person does. Actually, typically, and not a whole lot is known about the reasons that most people, um, you don't know what particular antidepressant they're going to respond to. So you try one, that doesn't work. You try another, that doesn't work. You try a third, and that for some unknown reason, does work. Um, so, but I would not be doing that as a first step. I would be doing that after um, you know, seeing you know, how just the passage of time is going to affect somebody's symptoms. Okay, so I will just present. So looking at um, pop culture on the internet and the way people talk about medicine and the way people talk about information and solutions, a pitch of watchful waiting sounds completely countercultural. People want the things. Mm. If you have a fix that could fix it, the bias towards action means I want you to do it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think the reason I would um, still think that there's a strategy of watchful waiting is Often, I mean, not always. And if you have somebody who is, say, suicidal or you know, someone who has, you know, truly severe symptoms, well, then, I mean, that would call for more immediate um, response. But I think for the bulk of conditions that, you know, you know nothing really dire is going, is likely to happen if, unless the person is treated right away. I mean, so that you just sort of, wait and see what's going to happen to, to symptoms. And if they don't go away naturally, you know, then it certainly would be time for more aggressive sort of treatment. Is there other than sort of physical or physical or mental side effects that would come with a particular antidepressant? Is there a reason to hold this watchful waiting, which again, I, I it sounds like a perfect, I would not, I'm not argue with this approach. Is there a reason why antidepressants should be leaned away from in the same way that it's not the same functioning, but antibiotics now finally, after mm -hmm. these antibiotic resistant bacteria have come up, the medical community has finally decided, okay, we're finally going to hold off on this. 
and you see it with the pain medication where maybe they've gone too far. We're going to get pain medication for everything. Mm. We're going to find out it's addictive. So now we're going to be very careful about who we give it to. Is there something dangerous about lots of antidepressants given out to all the people in a population Mm -hmm. physically or for their own well-being? Yeah, probably the danger of antidepressants would not be on a population level. Okay. Um, I think it's much more on an individual level, although certainly I I take your point about antibiotics, on the other hand, you know, can have serious population um, yeah. effects. I don't really think that is the case with antidepressants. Is there something in your looking through, you thought, hey, I'm going to look at past medical thinkers and, and past philosophic thinkers, like one of my, again, I've read snippets of it, Burton's book on melancholy. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating stuff. Scientists and philosophers used to be welded together in a way they aren't anymore. So did you as a psychiatrist, having looked at these old ways, you wanted to say, well, let's see how depression and melancholy and sadness has been looked at through the ages. Did you think there are some philosophical or religious or non-medical interventions that you thought, wow, maybe the modern world might emphasize these more rather than whatever quick fix they're hoping to get from just just give me a drug? Yeah, well, certainly depression it has a remarkable continuity um, over millennia. So you have the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans describing it in ways that any modern mental health professional would instantly recognize. That is only true for a tiny number of mental disorders. I mean, this long historical tradition. And you also have the quite similar ways of responding to it. I mean, so the ancient Greeks often prescribed, opium was very common at the time, um, and alcohol, surprisingly, was another um, prescribed response to- That's how my dad self-medicated his depression, and it worked to some extent. Yeah. Well, there's, I think, a a reason why so many people do. Um, Right say, drink and and take drugs. I mean, they're not, certainly are not good for you, but they do make you feel good. And if you're depressed, they can help you with your um, depression. So that's one ancient form of of treatment. Another is philosophy um, that, I mean, say the people... People like the Stoics or, I mean, Aristotle actually wrote a lot about um, depression. Um, And even the, um, you know, some of the major ancient figures, um, one made this uh, studied, uh, I forget the name of this ancient king who um, was melancholy because one of, oh, because he was in love with his father's mistress, not a good situation right. um, to be in. Then his father, who was the king, died, and he sort of hooked up with the mistress. His depression disappeared. Um, so <laughs> love, I think, you know, love cured the um, depressive symptoms. I mean, there's something that happens many times every day now. Is there anything, again, this might be out of your purview and you wouldn't want to talk about it. Is there um, a risk of, uh, at the philosophic 
population level or the individual level. So without being judgmental, because I think I appreciate the mental advocates, mental health advocates who say we need to be less judgmental about mental health and and have sympathy for people, the a level of resilience that falls down if we are told that normal sadness and normal sorrow to difficult circumstances is abnormal. I don't need to feel sad. We have things to take care of that. Yeah. Whereas I think, as you, as you would indicate, sadness is important. It's a part of your functioning. It gives you certain signals. It tells you things about your life. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a tendency to, we can just get rid of it, and that feels good. Uh, did you see in your work or research any, I don't know, w is there any evidence that there's a lack of resilience that comes with always seeking a life without sorrow? Well, I think you would have to study sadness and depression in ways that I have not to really answer that kind of question. I think you'd really have to um, follow people up intensely for long periods of time and see what happens in their in their life, which I certainly hope people are doing, but that's not something that I've done. <laughs> right. Is there a particular thing over the course of your career, a direction or or something that you were able to make happen along the lines of, of fixing, adjusting, doing something to psychiatry and the treatment of mental health that you thought you look back and you're like, I'm really glad that one book is the one book I did or that one bit of research. That's the thing I really feel good about. Well, I, I would have to twist what you just said. You see, because okay. I, I do think in particular, the loss of sadness had some direct influence on psychiatry's diagnostic system, but it was exactly the opposite influence that I would have liked to have seen. I mean, they may, it made the criteria even worse in right. the newest um, yeah, edition of the diagnostic manual. Um, so um has it had any positive impact? Well, I'd, I'd like to think maybe among readers, but certainly yeah. not <laughs> among the field, the discipline of psychiatry. Yeah. Do you stay super tapped into, I want to know exactly what's happening with mental illness and psychiatry now, or do you have you also just let it drift a bit? Is there anything you follow closely or you're like, you listen from time to time, but you're just not as involved. You don't have to be as involved anymore. Yeah, well, this is just my impression. It would be hard to either prove or disprove it that there's been periods when psychiatry has just been really very much in the news. And But I think the last time that was the case was around 2013 when the DSM-5, which is the newest edition of the DSM, was being debated. And it was very much a, a topic of conversation. Um, and it just seems to me since then, you, while on the one hand, mental health culture has exploded, you just don't see very much about the psychiatric profession or the, you know, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. That seems to have, I don't know, gone underground. Um, at the same time, that mental health culture is now everywhere. 
And that puzzle, that that situation has also puzzled me too. So I do think that's yeah. interesting. You're right. When a new DSM comes up, everybody kinds of talks about what does it change? What does it do? They asked all the psychiatrists. The fact that mental health culture is everywhere, do you think it, it becomes so fuzzy, the things it captures, the things people use it to talk about, uh, that it almost doesn't, it's hard to say what exactly mental health, it seems like it kind of encompasses absolutely everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think maybe the best example of what you said is um, PTSD. That is now everybody is traumatized by, um, (laughs) you know, it's just become such a common um, theme. And it really does trivialize, I think, people who undergo, I mean, true traumas. I mean, just as there's true depressions, there's true traumas, but that when everybody gets traumatized by, you know, oh, I got a bad grade on my exam um, kind of thing, the term becomes meaningless. Yeah. Is there a hope you have for the future that you think, it would be interesting if I saw psychiatry do this, or it would be interesting if I saw the mental health shift this way. People focus too much on this, they should focus on that. I'm just wondering if you, again, you have a, oh, I wonder. Well, I have to say, I'd be much more of a pessimist than an optimist on, on that question. I just don't see any movement at all to um, you know, improve the diagnosis, say, of depression and of other mental health phenomena. I think the main thrust of research in um, psychiatry is certainly turned to behavioral genetics and looking for the genes that are responsible And the results, I think, have been very surprising, even to critics, um, that they just don't seem to be important genetic influences on um, mental, even mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, where it would make sense that um, there would be that, in fact, Uh, Many, many genes are related. Each of these genes contributes like a tiny proportion um, of why someone would develop a mental illness. And altogether, it's not a huge um, impact on any condition, including depression. This is, I think, both surprising and disappointing in in psychiatry. I mean, there was such tremendous hope that, you know, now, you know, the genome is deciphered and we have all these advanced techniques to look at DNA where that's really going to create major breakthroughs in, you know, why some people developmental disorders and others don't. And at least to this point, it hasn't. My last question is, do you have a favorite uh, psychology or psychiatry thinker or writer who influenced you the most that if you could tell somebody, if you're into psychiatry or psychology, we have to read? Well, one person I just really highly recommend is uh, Randy Nessie, N-E-S-S-E. He has um, written, I believe it was 2019. So it's a you know pretty recent book. It's called... Um, 
good reasons for bad feelings and which is a great <laughs> title. And I think yes. um, sort of summarizes what, you know, I've been trying to get across in my writings, but it's written. It's very accessible book. I think it's, it's well-written. It covers a whole range of conditions in the field of uh, psychiatry. So it's just very well done. And so if I, I'd recommend one book. I think that would be the book I would recommend.